We were looking at literary structure last time. Literary structure can be within a sentence, but it goes beyond the sentence. It involves literary relationships. And as we move through this material, you'll get a better feel for what we mean by literary relationships. But basically, it has the idea of how does one sentence relate to another, or how does one paragraph relate to another, or how do a series of paragraphs relate to each other to form the other structural units, and then ultimately, how do all of the parts of a book relate to one another. So that's literary structure and literary relationships. And we left off last time at looking at literary devices that all authors use. And these are just, what could we say? These are just basic literary devices that are used in every language, virtually every culture. We use all of these today. But because the Bible is some of the best literature ever written, you would expect that literary devices that are common would be utilized in Scripture as well. And if you can observe them and see them, it's going to help you to see how an author is attempting to organize his material. And if you can understand that structure, it's going to help you to understand what he's trying to communicate. So that's why this is important. Now, we'll talk a lot more about structure when we get to the interpretive stage, and at that stage, I'll give you some tools to be able to analyze structure. So you'll take the observations and then begin to analyze the structure in order to gain meaning. Literary device number four. Now, the first three, I think you're very familiar with because we use these all the time ourselves. But uh, there's also the literary device called continuity. And by the way, it's not so important that you remember these names. In fact, I sometimes have trouble remembering exactly the, the titles of each of these or the, the, the exact descriptive word here like continuity. The main thing is to be able to observe these devices. In other words, see how they're used. And let's take a look at this one in, in Luke chapter 15. I think it's vividly illustrated. In fact, you might turn to it, and we want to look at, beginning in the first verse there, Luke 15. Anyone care to read the first, read the first two verses there? Tax collectors and sinners who all draw near to him. Pharisees and scribes probably saying, This man receives sinners and eats them. Okay. So, Luke is recording an incident where basically the Pharisees and the scribes are implying something negative about the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the implication here? Tax gatherers and sinners were coming to Jesus and a... They're commoners, therefore he must be a commoner, not... Even more than a commoner, he's a what? He's a sinner. The implication is birds of a feather fly together. He's part of the IRS. Yeah, he's part of the IRS. <laughs> he's just like he's just like Lois Lerner, because he hangs out with her. He's just like her. That's the whole. That's the implication here. Got that? 
Now notice the answer that Jesus gives in verse 3, rather than denying the charges, denying the implication in simple words, instead he gives a series of parables. And what I'm illustrating here is each of these parables, all three of them go together, and there's a continuity amongst these three parables. So in studying this passage, particularly verses 1 and 2, you need to include the entire chapter. It all hangs together. This organizes chapter 15 of Luke's Gospel. Everything there is related. And then in chapter 16, he starts another another topic. But everything in chapter 15 hangs together, and what ties all this together is this device of continuity. So what does he do? He gives them, in verse 3, he, he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep, and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? We're going to have some elements here. So the first parable is a parable of lost sheep, and the shepherd goes out to seek it. So you have that element, and he finds it. And then in verse 6, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. So there's a great celebration at the end. And there, there's an application. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Simple parable, easy illustration. But what Jesus is doing is he refuting the assumption of the scribes and Pharisees and saying, my actions in relationships to sinners and tax gatherers is like a shepherd viewing them as valuable and going out and seeking them. The implication here is for salvation, for eternal life. But he doesn't stop there. What does he do? He gives another parable. Or, what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house? So you have this feverish activity to try to find the lost coin. So the next parable deals with the lost coin, and we have the same pattern. You have the same continuity. This is continuity. Get it? Something lost. Great effort to find it. And if you read the parable, after she finds it, what happens? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. So we have rejoicing. And then in the same way, verse 10, you have the application. Not only rejoicing on earth, but rejoicing in heaven. The implication is, as Jesus interacts with the tax gatherers and sinners, and as they repent, there's rejoicing in heaven. So he's refuting their assumption. And you should not read the third parable. We call it the parable of the prodigal son, which is a good title. But probably a better title, because of this continuity, is the parable of the lost son. So we have a lost sheep, lost coin, and a lost son. See that? You see the continuity? And if you read the long parable, you see that it has all of the same elements. Something is lost. 
The father is waiting for the finding. We have a little story of how the son changes directions and he is found. There's this great banquet, sacrifice of an animal and a great celebration at the end. And then there's another element that's added along with it in application to the other brother. But you have the same element, you have continuity. See how Jesus using literary devices, and in this case, verbally, to uh, organize a message that he is giving to a hostile audience in this case. So you have continuity. You might also see it in another example would be in Revelation chapter 6. We won't look that one up. But we have six seal judgments. Each one of them follows a similar structure. And each one of them, you have a lot of similarity in each one of them in the things that tie them together. Now, there are different seal judgments, but they're tied together in a unit using similar introduction and description, etc. And even within the seal judgments, you have four horsemen. So the first four within themselves form a unit of continuity. We have four different colors of horses. So the vision that John saw of these seal judgments hold together as a unit, and even the four within are held together as a unit within a unit. Later on in chapters 8 and 9 in the book of Revelation, you also have uh, seven trumpet judgments, similar pattern in each of those as well. Chapter 16, you have seven bowl judgments, and you have patterns similar there as well. And you might even say that these three also kind of hang together, and they're within a major division of the book kind of outline a theme of judgment overall. So that's continuity, where you have similar elements that tie material together in in a series. Continuity. Number five, climax. This is where material is arranged from the lesser to the greater to the greatest. And what does that produce? That, That kind of produces a climactic ending to kind of make a a bigger point or to reinforce a main idea. Literary device of climax. This is also somewhat common in literature, and we can illustrate it from the same chapter in Luke, Luke chapter 15. Not only do you have continuity, but what do you have? You have climax, obviously. Yeah, this is, this is the main point. In other words, Jesus is more interested in people than he is sheep, and certainly more interested in families and people than he is coins. So you have both working together to produce climax. And this is the climactic parable in that not only is it long, longer than all the others, the other two, in fact, longer than the two combined, Lost sheep, we have five verses. Lost coin, we have three verses. Lost son, we have 23 verses. And it has some other elements as well. And it's expanded. So the parable of the lost son is climactic. 
You see that? So that's climax. You might also notice, if you want another example, you have in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 45, we have Christ's ministry in Galilee, and you see a growth in popularity. So you have a movement of little growth, more growth, more growth. The climactic verse is verse 45. Where in that portion, the news had spread so greatly that he was no longer able to enter a city. So he begins preaching on the kingdom. Four disciples follow him. We have a healing, and then news went out throughout Galilee. Healing, More healings as a result. And then it continues to grow to the point that he can't even enter the city. So the movement in this narrative, is from the lesser to the greater to the greatest climax. That's number five. Number six. I'll give you an example of this from an entire book. This is the literary device of what's described as cruciality. And the essence of this is the writer utilizes the principle of the pivot in other words, the, the material is arranged around some event that turns everything. In other words, a turning point. So it turns in on one factor. In other words, one thing changes everything. It's called cruciality. Let's use Second Samuel as an example of cruciality. David is the main subject there. So in chapter 1 through chapter 10... Everything is moving in a positive direction. David triumphs over his enemies. He triumphs over situations in the family. He triumphs over issues in Israel. Victory after victory after victory. And then, what do we have in chapters 11 and 12? Does anybody remember? You can probably guess from my chart there. Something happens, and then everything turns. Everything going positive for David. In fact, in chapter 7, he receives the Davidic covenant, which outlines the rest of world history. What were you saying? Bathsheba, chapters 11 and 12. Now, the writer didn't just throw that incident in just to get an R rating so that more readers would read the book. He doesn't introduce sex and violence and things that are less favorable. He puts that in right in the middle of the book because everything changes. Everything turns on that. In fact, let me illustrate it on the blackboard here. You might expect the writer is showing that things are going in this direction. Now here's what happens here. But take out that incident. You might expect in chapter 7... You have the Davidic covenant. You might expect some of the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant within the lifetime of David. Perhaps Messiah even comes in David's time. I mean, the book doesn't tell us that. But at least we would expect positive things happening in the life of David. But instead, as a result of that, we have, this is the pivot point. At that point, we have a downward spiral. And the rest of Second Samuel, it almost 
by way of just the narrative that is presented, the writer of Second Samuel is implying that what? Sin has negative consequences. Even in the greatest king of Israel. He can receive forgiveness, but he will suffer consequences. He has problems from chapter 13 to chapter 24 within the family, within the nation. Enemies rise up, so he has all kinds of problems. Do you see how the whole book and, in fact, the whole life of David turns on that one incident or series of incidents that involve the cover-up as well and the murder of her husband. That's chapters 11 and 12. So it's put in there to kind of illustrate from a historical example, sin has consequences. Make sense? The principle of cruciality. So if you can observe that, then that gives you a handle on an outline of the book. So the book, you have... Three major parts. Three major divisions. Roman numeral one, David's triumphs. And it's not talking about a motorcycle in this context. Roman numeral number two, David's transgression. And if you want to use alliteration, how would you describe the third division? David's troubles. So triumphs, transgression, troubles... Now you have a handle on the whole book of Second Samuel. If you can observe this pivot point. See how he organized the material? That's an example on the book level, but you can find the same thing within even a paragraph. How everything turns on one event. Number seven, we have the literary device interchange, where you have an alternation of material where certain elements are alternated back and forth, back and forth. You see this, I don't have it illustrated on a slide, but you see this in the life of, of Christ, the, the in the birth narratives, and John the Baptist. We have a little short paragraph on the John the Baptist, then it moves to Mary, and then it moves back, or John the Baptist's parents, then Mary back to the parents, then marry, back and forth. You have kind of interchange or this alternating of material. And it kind of heightens both personalities. Both persons are heightened by the use of interchange. Another example for Samuel chapters 1 through 12, the principle of interchange, where you have Hannah and Samuel, who are what? Very godly people. Samuel is a godly young man from very young as a result of the influence of his mother, Hannah. So you have the birth of Samuel and the dedication by Hannah, chapters 1 and 2 through verse 11. And then in chapter 12, we have a little short paragraph, 12 to 17, Eli and sons. And how would you describe their character? Not godly at all. (laughs) In fact, even though Eli was a priest, right, his sons were very depraved, showing not only bad parenting, but probably reflecting the character of Eli. So you have this little paragraph kind of thrown in there, so you kind of get a feel. So you you, you have this interchange as well, in other words, this alternating back and forth, but you also have contrast working with it. 
the godliness of Hannah and Samuel, and the evil of Eli and his sons. And then it switches back in chapter 2, verse 18, another paragraph, to verse 21, Hannah and Samuel again. And this is positive. And then it goes back to the negative in verse 22 to 36, back to the positive in chapter 3, back to the negative, chapter 4, back to Hannah and Samuel, chapter 7, 3 through 12. It goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. It's a common literary device. Yeah, in all communication media. So it's not unusual to find it in the best literature that has ever been penned, the Bible itself. And the point I'm making here, if you can observe these things, in other words, think, how is this material arranged as you read through it? What is the author using to organize this material It'll help you to find how this material is bound together. Now, this may actually be 1 through 12, may be a division, and the way that whole division is held together is by this pattern of alternating back and forth. We call that interchange. So it'll help you to outline portions of Scripture. Number 8, the principle or the literary device of particularization. Particularization. This is movement from a general to a particular. Movement from a general principle or concept to particular illustrations or examples. And let's turn to Matthew chapter 6 for an example of particularization. And like I said, it's it's not so important that you remember the names of these literary devices. What's more important is that you be able to observe what's going on. In other words, being able to observe that, okay, we have a general idea, principle, concept, and we have a movement to some particular examples, illustrations of that general idea. Somebody read verse 1. And and by the way, you have continuity here as well. So you have continuity working with particularization. Chapter 6, Matthew 6, 1. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by the Lord. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Okay. Okay, did you read that carefully? It's a warning. Concerning what? What's the warning about? Acts of righteousness. External acts of righteousness. In other words, public acts of righteousness. So he's warning about a certain way of conducting yourself in public. He also includes there the concept of reward. The idea of the reward of the Father. We could consider that the general principle. Verse 1 is the general principle, beware of this externalized public life. And be conscious that proper living or improper living brings positive or negative reward. Now this is particularization because we have this general principle, and now we have three examples of the particulars. Three examples of the particulars. And in this passage, Jesus addresses 
the three main three main stumbling blocks of the Jewish believer in the first century in terms of living their public life. The first area was in the area of almsgiving. And you're probably familiar with this. By the way, what is the overall context of this? This is Jesus speaking in what context? Matthew chapter 6 is part of what? Sermon on the Mount. So this is the broader portion of Scripture section probably is the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things that he's teaching here, so Jesus is a master communicator. He's using particularization. Gives the general principle, and now he gives three examples of how Jewish people in the first century failed. Where their public life was only external and didn't have inward reality to it. And it's that inward reality is the point that he's making that gains reward from the Father. And notice the continuity, but also notice the particularization. The continuity, when therefore you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you. In other words, don't make this public display as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. This is the an element of the continuity. He gives this warning, and he talks about hypocrisy in these public areas, in the synagogue and in the streets, very public, that they may be honored by men. That's another element. In other words, all this public display, the motive is to put yourself in good light before men. And here's the element of reward. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. In other words, that's it. No reward from the Father. See how he's expanded this warning of public display? with a very specific. What's the next one? Next area. It was a major problem. Praying. And it so happens that we have what is commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. But notice elements that you might miss, beginning in verse 5, and when you pray, you are not to be as the hypocrites. See that element? Continuity there. But another example of the general principle, so it's particularization, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. In other words, simply a public display. And in this one, he's going to give an expanded discussion of the alternative. When you pray, go into your inner room. In other words, this should be a a matter between you and God, not a public display of religiosity. And then we have the details of the Lord's uh, prayer here. Verse 14, for if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. So there, there's a response from the Father, a reward from the Father. If you do not, part of the warning, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. So he deals with the area of prayer. And the third one is fasting. This was also a big deal in the first century. Whenever you fast, but in the first century, the failure was, it was a public thing. So he says, do not put on gloomy face as the hypocrites. See that word again. So you have repetition, you have continuity, and you have particularization. For they neglect their appearance in order to be seen fasting by men. You see that element again? Third time. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. There's the reward aspect. And then he gives the alternative. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. 
so that you may not be seen fasting by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will re- repay you the element of the Lord. You see that? Particularization, general principle, and then you have three particulars. So in studying the Lord's Prayer, you need to put it in its context. The context of the Lord's Prayer is found within verses 1 through 18. All of that hangs together. All that hangs together. Now, you know, there's value in understanding the Lord's Prayer in isolation, but I think it enhances your understanding when you take it in the context of the other three particulars. And when you're outlining in your exegesis of the book of Matthew, verses 1 through 18 all hang together. In one section or whatever the structural unit of that portion fits in. See that? While we're in Matthew chapter 6, turn back a chapter and look at chapter 5, because I think you have another example there. This is Jesus. Jesus used these literary devices very masterfully to organize the communication that he communicated in the Sermon on the Mount. Great orator. Matthew records it for us. Somebody read verse 17, and actually this this whole paragraph from 17 through 20 probably is an introduction to the rest of the chapter. Somebody read just verse 17, and then I'll just summarize the rest of it. Go ahead. Nothing that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy those. Okay. So he didn't come to destroy the Old Testament, particularly the Mosaic law. He didn't come to undermine the Old Testament prophets. Then he gives the alternative of the permanence of the law until heaven and earth pass away not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law in other words this there's this is permanent I, I didn't come to undermine it even though I'm teaching new fresh ideas verse 19 he gives a warning and that goes with verse 20 and then beginning in verse 21 he came to fulfill you could even interpret verses 21 through 48 as part of Christ fulfilling the law in that he is giving the the real meaning. He's fulfilling the Old Testament, particularly the Ten Commandments and the law, by filling it with meaning. Fulfilling in the sense of filling with meaning. By the first century, many of these issues had fallen under the weight of tradition. And rather than taking the passage freshly and exegeting them newly, they were taking an interpretation of these passages. And some of that had become a distortion of the reality of the truth of these passages. And what Jesus is doing is correcting that, and he takes a series of these as examples. And you could say that this is another example of continuity because you have similar elements as well. But it's also particularization. In that, the general principle is that Jesus came to fulfill the law, not get rid of it. And now he's giving new significance to the law and he gives us examples. So he's fulfilling the law. And 
How does he start off? You have heard, and notice each one of these is introduced with that little phrase. That's continuity. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, he's not overturning the law, he is interpreting the law in its initial intent. And being the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he is the new Moses on on the new mount, explaining what Moses' intent was, or God's intent, in terms of the commandment on murder. You shall not commit murder. I say to you, everyone who is angry, in other words, he goes to the root of the commandment. The commandment was not just an external act, or against an external act of the murder, but what Jesus does is he goes to the roots of murder, and it begins with anger. And he's talking about wrong kinds of anger. In other words, a, a wrong expression of anger. Uh, anger in itself is not sin because of Ephesians 4. It's how you how you utilize that anger or how, how that anger is expressed. And what Jesus is doing is he's going to the root of it. Root of murder is anger. That's the root motivation behind it. So he gives that example. That's the particular of how he is fulfilling and filling with meaning the law. Then he takes the next one. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Well, that was a commandment, but it was only dealt with on that superficial external way. And all the loopholes were added in terms of getting around that commandment. And Jesus says that it's a heart issue. goes all the way to the heart. And he brings that out. That's the ultimate intent. And he does that throughout. And you can see not only the continuity, but you can see the movement from the general to the particulars. You see that? And I think he gives six examples there of murder, adultery, divorce, vows, retaliation, and then he closes with love, which the whole law can be summarized in loving your neighbors as yourself. Loving God and loving your neighbors. Particularization. Yeah, that's interesting. Not only you have heard, but you followed by the thought. Yes. So that's continuity, and that introduces particularization. Each example. Contrast? Contrast, yep. You have contrast there too. So you have all of these working together. So Jesus is the master communicator. Uh, You could view Hebrews 11 from that perspective. We have the first three verses that gives us a description of faith, somewhat a theological description of faith. comes to mind because I just taught that passage last Sunday. (laughs) And this Sunday we'll start verse 4, where we have particular examples of faith. And he's going to tell us what faith looks like with these several examples in the rest of the chapter. So verses 1 through 3 of Hebrews 11 would be the general description of faith. And then we have a series of specific examples, the particular examples of faith in Hebrews 11. So that's number... Eight, particularization. Number nine, generalization. 
This is kind of the counterpart to particularization. If you have a movement from a general idea or general principle to the particulars, what do you expect with generalization? A movement from a particular example to the general idea or the general concept. So you have movement in the other direction. Make sense? An example might be James 2, verses 1 through 10, where we have in that paragraph, James is talking about not making distinctions between the poor and the rich. That's a very specific example. Not making distinctions between poor and rich in your attitudes and how you're dealing with them in a church setting. But where does he move to from that specific particular example in James 2, what else does he talk about in verses 1 through 10? Talks about breaking or keeping the whole law. That's the general. The idea of keeping the whole law. He gives a specific example, and if you can't keep that one, then it doesn't matter any number of laws you could have violated, but you have violated the whole law. The particular to the general. Particular examples to general principles. Even this Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26, the uh, one that we just read concerning murder, the particular is the idea of murder. And Jesus goes to the general principle that can cover other things as well. In other words, Anger can result not just in murder, but it can result in slander. It can result in other things as well. So murder is the particular expression of it that the commandment embodies. But if you go to the root of it, that anger can manifest itself in other ways as well. Many other particular ways. So you have a movement from the particular to the general. Number 10, causation. Literary device of causation. Turn to Romans 1 for an example here. This is a tremendous passage that uh, gives us a lot of insight in a lot of God's dealings. I wish we had time to expound it. We'd need about five hours to do it, though, at least. Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. So let me give you an example of causation. There it is, Romans 1, 18 through the end of the chapter. Uh, we have more than one paragraph there, but all of it hangs together. Those, those paragraphs hang together. What do we have right off the bat? Beginning in... You can start with verse 18, but let's skip to verse 18. It talks about the wrath of God being displayed in verse 18, and he gives the beginning of this whole series of causation. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, in other words, those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, for God made it evident to them. What's going on there? What is God doing? God is what? Revealing himself. And basically this passage teaches that God reveals himself to all men. He reveals himself. So we have, first of all, and I'm going to use alliteration here. First of all, he has revelation. Or we have revelation. God reveals himself to all men. That revelation is internal. 
within them, verse 19. Verse 20 tells us it's external, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, in other words, things about God, his perfections, his invisible attributes, specifically his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen. Notice all of the words here in terms of this revelation. It In verse 19, it is evident within them, it is known, which is known about God, evident within them. God made it evident to them. Then in verse 20, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen. These invisible things can be clearly seen. Being understood. In other words, it's not just superficial. It's real, understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. In other words, there's an external revelation, an internal conscience external, the creation reveals something of God. So there's revelation, there's also, I'm using alliteration, there's realization, or there's real understanding. Things are known. So the revelation causes God to be known, or to be realized, that's causation. That causation makes man responsible, there without excuse, And that responsibility calls for an action. The action is not stated, but it implies that man should respond to that revelation. But what does man do in general? That's verse 21. Even though they knew God, there's the knowing again, there's the realization, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. So what did they do with that revelation? Rejection. So we have revelation, we have realization of that revelation, we have responsibility to that revelation, but man in general rejects that revelation. So the causation continues to degenerate here. That rejection causes a response of what in verse 21? but they became futile. In other words, something happens to those that reject God's revelation. Futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So we have rationalization, and we have reprobation. Reprobation. That's verse 21. And verse 23, professing to be wise, they became fools. In this chain, something else happens. Instead of getting PhD, well, they can get PhDs, but they're really fools. They end up fools. That's replacement. That's actually verse 23. Verse 23, they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. In other words, instead of responding to this revelation and trusting in the one true God, they replace God with idolatry. See the chain Paul's building here? And and then verse 18, go back to verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Verse 24 is the uh, expansion of verse 18. And what do we have in verse 24? Therefore, see the chain continues, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, etc. Verse 26, for this reason, going back, God gave them over Because of all of these things, because they are responsible, because they have rejected that, 
They've rationalized. They have become reprobate. And they have replaced the true God for idolatry. Therefore, God gave them over. Then verse 28, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. And the chain just continues to get worse and worse till it ends in verse 32. So the last thing that we have here sounds like an R, but wrath. And that's the wrath of verse 18. That's a great summary of Jeremiah. It's a great summary of Romans 1. (laughs) But I I mean, that's a great summary there for the whole, that whole history of Jeremiah. That's, this is the history of mankind. Described in Jeremiah, described by Ezekiel, described by all the prophets, described by Jesus. This is the history of mankind right there. But the point I'm making here, what Paul is doing here is he gives a series of things that cause the next and the next causes the next and ends in the ultimate causation. See the causation? Powerful literary device. To me, that, that just really amplifies the value of the Old Testament. Yeah. If you imagine, you didn't actually have the, the history to go with that. If you just had that statement by itself, Yeah. it wouldn't mean as much. That's right. But you see it happening over and over and over throughout. In fact, you see this cycle of sin played out throughout world history. And we'll even see it in the Millennial Kingdom. How does the Millennial Kingdom end? Great Rebellion and then final judgment, final wrath. So that's causation. If you have causation, what might you expect as the counterpart of that, which is described as substantiation, that's the movement in the other direction. It's progress from the effect back to the cause. Second Samuel 12, first seven verses there, probably is an example. That's the incident. Remember, that's part of the Bathsheba story there. This is the end of it, where Nathan tells a story of an evil man. In other words, he's raising in David's consciousness the effects of this evil man, and he uses the effect to bring to the realization of David, you know, he's before the king. The king can sit, you know, off with your head. So he has to be careful here. This is the prophet trying to convict the monarch of the, basically the world empire at the time. So the monarch, if he so chooses, could just get rid of Nathan. So very wisely, he gives the, the result or the, the effect in a parable. And then what's the cause of such an evil situation? David is the cause. You're the one. In other words, you're the man. So it moves from kind of the the bad situation or the result or the end moving back to David, you're the one that caused such a thing that we have described in a parable. Substantiation. Instrumentation. In instrumentation, we have the setting forth of the means to an end. Setting forth the means to an end and usually the end itself. A means to an end. Instrumentation. Here's a small scale. What in, in Galatians 6, 7 through 10, what a man sows, so he will also reap. 
In other words, the things that we do, the things that we live out, we're going to reap the things that we do. So the, the end is, is corresponding to the things that we do, and the things that we do are the means to that end. Reaping and sowing, that whole concept. That's a biblical concept that runs throughout, but it's spelled out in that Galatians passage. Or John 20, verses 30 to 31 where John lays out the purpose of his gospel, basically. But in that passage, what he also does is he explains that he has selected miracles. He could have selected any number. In other words, many other miracles Jesus did. But John says, I have selected these miracles contained in this book. These miracles are a means for what? that you may understand that Jesus is the Messiah. So the means to an end, the means of presenting Jesus' miraculous works for the end that they will recognize Jesus as the Messiah, and the ultimate end is that they may believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. Means to an end. So the whole gospel of John, and the purpose as well, we'll talk about purpose later, but at this point, instrumentation, where the the miracles that John selects, and he calls them signs, the signs are the means to an end to point to Jesus as the Messiah, worthy of trust, that in trusting we may have eternal life instrumentation. Literary devices. If you can observe these, you'll have a better picture of what Scripture is describing. Explanation. The presentation of an idea or event followed by its interpretation or explanation. I gave you the example of Revelation 1. When we were talking about metaphorical language, do you remember that? And I said that Jesus is using a a symbol of the lampstands, but he interprets it. That's explanation. Another example would be in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus starts by giving them a series of parables. And what do the disciples ask? Apparently, he hadn't spoken in parables before. And all of a sudden, he's speaking in parables, so the disciples ask him, you know, why why are you speaking in parables? And Jesus gives not only an explanation of why he's speaking in parables, but he interprets the parable of the soils, or soils. That's interpretation or explanation, giving an explanation or interpretation. The literary device of proportion, portion. This is an emphasizing or a de-emphasizing of material by the amount of material the author includes or excludes. Let me state that again. Emphasis or de-emphasis by the amount of material an author includes or excludes. And by the way, at this stage, you can observe these things. These are just observations. You're not interpreting yet. All four of the Gospels, we could use an illustration, but let's take the Gospel of Luke to illustrate the principle or the literary device of proportion. 
We have 30 years of the life of Christ in the first three chapters to about about verse 13 of chapter 4. 30 years. But you can say this of all four Gospels. Matthew has a brief birth narrative. Mark has virtually nothing. John, again, this excludes the entire 30 years. And in Luke's Gospel, from chapter 4, verse 14, through chapter 9, verse 50, we have two and a half years. And if you just keep going through the description, you have six months. So it kind of keeps going down. We have the last eight days of the life of Christ towards the end there. So the time is diminishing, but we have intensity of description of material here. What is this telling us? And this is true of all four Gospels. The numbers will work out differently in the four Gospels. But you see the the law of proportion. What's the most important aspect here? The things relating to the death and resurrection of Christ. Now we have 50 days of resurrection. So these, this is what's crucial in all four Gospels. The law of proportion. Not that the 30 years are unimportant, but what is most important about the 30 years is just simply the birth narratives, and that's only two Gospels. And Luke only makes one mention of Christ at age 12, and that's basically it in terms of 30 years. Because we're moving to the ultimate purpose of the Incarnation is the death and resurrection. So we have all these chapters devoted to these last eight days and then 50 days after the resurrection. Book of Genesis. We have 11 chapters of primeval history, about 2,000 years if you take the numbers of the book of Genesis. So we only have 11 chapters, and then we have 39 chapters, 12 through 50, of patriarchal history. What is the main focus of the book of Genesis? What is the emphasis? Law of proportion here. That only occupies about 300 years as opposed to 2,000 years. Moses is interested in laying the foundation for the nation of Israel. The primeval history just gives you the introduction to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant and the nation of Israel. But what is most prominent in Genesis is the patriarchal history. Law proportion. Literary device. Summarization or abridgment. Let me go over this quickly. This is the employment of an abridgment or short passage that summarizes either a whole book or a large portion. In other words, an abridgment that gives a summary. I've already given you the book of Acts, Acts 1.8. And if you look at it uh, geographically, in Acts 1.8, it talks about the disciples receiving power and being witnesses in Jerusalem. And the first seven chapters are focused in Jerusalem, the ministry of the disciples in Jerusalem. And not only will they be witnesses in Jerusalem, but what? Judea and Samaria. That includes chapters 8 through chapter 11. And to the uttermost parts of the earth, that includes chapters 12 through 28, the ends of the earth. So in verse 8 of chapter 1, we have a summarization of the whole book. I also gave you the book of Revelation. You remember we said in chapter 1, verse 19, John is exhorted to write things you have seen. That's the vision. That's chapter 1. 
things which are, that's the churches, chapters 2 and 3, and things that will take place after these things, in other words, after the things relating to the church age, that's chapter 4 to the end of the book. Similarly, Romans 1, 16 and 17 give us a good summary of the whole book of Romans. Summarization. Two others, you've heard of chiasm, where you have basically either lines of Scripture that are in parallel. You have lines at the beginning and lines at the end that parallel each other, and then you have lines in the middle that are parallel, and sometimes you'll have a central line, that's the climax. The climax is in the middle. Chiasm. You kind of draw it on a board. Yep. This is chiasm. You have maybe verses. These lines, these two are parallel. It's called chiasm. Kind of the idea uh, letter chi. In other words, you have a midpoint here. This tends to be the climax in the middle. These are parallel. So an author will arrange his material in that way. Another literary device is called inclusio. And by the way, these are not all of them. These are just the major ones that you'll find in Scripture. Inclusio, where the beginning, the beginning is very similar to the end, or there's some element that kind of ties this whole portion together. I'm in the process of exegeting the book of Hebrews and teaching it, and one of the things that I saw, actually was pointed out by another friend, that in Hebrews, turn to Hebrews chapter 5, and I think inclusio ties all this material together. Chapter 5, verse 11. So this is a section in the book of Hebrews. Concerning him, we have much to say. Now he's referring back to verse 10, Melchizedek. He liked to kind of go on an exposition of Melchizedek, but it takes a little break. He'll come back to Melchizedek in chapter 7. But concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. So he has to address their spiritual state here. Then he talks about this very difficult passage here that's caused a lot of theological problems, but we're not going to get into that. What I want you to see is this whole portion hangs together and ends in verse 12, not verse 8, chapter 6. In fact, in the middle of a sentence there, chapter 12, that you may not be sluggish. There's the same Greek word as dull of hearing in verse 11. So it goes back to where he started, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That word is used very, very infrequently in all the New Testament, and here it occurs two times in the book of Hebrews, and if you compare the beginning and the end, they're very similar, which gives us a little clue that more than likely this section from Chapter 5, 11 runs all the way through chapter 6, verse 12. And it's based on the observation that this may be an inclusio. Where we have a beginning with some elements, and then we have an ending that goes back to the beginning. See that? But you're not saying that something follows the 13 through the end. You're saying it actually ends there. Starts in 5, this, verse 12. This section. Okay. This section. Now, obviously... Verse 13 is related, but this hangs together. Is that supposed to be something like the same concept of 
Yeah, well, yeah. That, that's a different concept, though. Parenthetical statement, yeah. Okay, we've kind of gone over, but let's take a break.